Have you ever allowed your imagination to run wild about the world of work? To wonder what would happen if we tore up all the rules and started again? Welcome to Series 3 of What If, a podcast from the CIPD's work magazine that dares to ask the previously unthinkable. I'm Katie Jacobs from the CIPD, and in this episode, I'm stopping short of throwing a tin of soup at a priceless artwork to ask the question, what if CEOs were activists? There is one and only one responsibility of business, to use its resources and engage in activities designed to increase its profits. That's a Milton Friedman quote, of course, from the 1970s. And we've come a long way from when this was taken as gospel in the business world. Now, business leaders at least give the outward impression of believing that the purpose of an organisation is to give back to the societies in which it operates, reduce its impact on the planet, and generally make the world a better place, as well as making money, of course. ESG, that's environmental, social and governance issues, are of increasing importance to investors, meaning CEOs in many organisations have no choice but to take them more seriously. A 2021 survey of investors by PwC found nearly 80% said ESG was an important factor in their investment decision-making. Then there's the fact that all of us, whether employee or customer, expect more from our business leaders now. The 2023 Edelman Trust Barometer finds business is the only institution that's out of business, government, media and NGOs that is seen as ethical and competent by the global public. With trust in major institutions plummeting, business is stepping in to fill the gap. The CIPD's recent research on responsible business contains some powerful examples of how leaders from organisations as diverse as Microsoft, Nationwide and Dassault Systems are taking a more overtly activist role. In the US, the billionaire founder of outdoor fashion brand Patagonia recently gave away his company to a charitable trust committed to fighting climate change, while the CEO of Ben & Jerry's has said that when it comes to social activism, there is no topic that is off-limits for the company. But there is also plenty of criticism. Accusations of greenwashing, pinkwashing, purposewashing and rainbowwashing abound. Think of all those companies proudly sharing their International Women's Day activities, only to be exposed for astounding gender pay gaps. All those organisations that spoke out on the importance of Black Lives Matter, but whose executive committee and board remain a sea of white faces. And on the other side of the argument, there are no shortage of angry commentators who feel the business world is becoming too woke on the wrong side of a raging culture war. So, is CEO activism the future of leadership? Or is it inappropriate? Is all activism necessarily a good thing? And how can we encourage more responsible leadership practice across the business world? How much of it is genuine? And how much is just good PR? To get under the skin of this issue, I spoke to two leadership experts. Danny Mortimer is CEO of NHS Employers and is a regular commentator on issues impacting the healthcare workforce. I also spoke to Margaret Heffernan, an entrepreneur, CEO and author who thinks, writes and speaks extensively about leadership and who isn't afraid to tell leaders where they are going wrong. I started by asking both Danny and Margaret to define what CEO activism means to them. Let's hear from Danny first, then Margaret. So in our context, both in terms of the organisation I run, but also the people I represent across the NHS in England, in our experience, it means being prepared to speak up about those issues that impact upon our staff and on our patients 
and on the communities that we serve increasingly. That's the first thing. I think the second thing is that it is about recognising the impact that organisations as employers have on their local communities and, and typically in, in England and the NHS is the largest employer in any community in the in the country. It's something about recognising that that impact. I think the third thing is it's not necessarily or even hardly ever about party politics. It's about saying these are the things that I see that are in the best interests of our of our services or of our people or of the communities that we we serve. And I think for some colleagues there's a nervousness that it's too party political. And that that's not what it's about at all. I think of activist CEOs as CEOs who really want to get ahead. So they're very action oriented, but in particular they're trying to push an agenda significantly often because they're sick of being caught on the hop all the time and always having to catch up, which we've seen quite a lot of. And so I think some of the really most interesting, thoughtful and effective leaders these days are thinking, where are we? Where is the world going? And how do we integrate that and our strategy so that we aren't constantly on the hop, catching up, trying retrospectively to sort of repackage ourselves? And I guess if I think of activist CEOs in a positive way, I think they do want to make a positive contribution to the world. I mean, let's not forget there's a negative incarnation of the activist CEO, you know, in which category I would put somebody like Elon Musk, who's trying very hard, for example, to make Twitter a much less safe space. Now, that's definitely activism, which I think is really unfortunate. As Margaret is keen to warn... Activism among our leadership population isn't always about making the world a better place, at least not as those from more progressive quarters might see it, but as eternal optimists and genuine believers in the ability and responsibility of business to act as a force for good, we are going to focus on that more positive side of activism throughout the rest of this conversation. With that in mind, what are the drivers for more leaders stepping into this space? Is it purely selfless do-gooding, or is there a more strategic and dare we say it, commercial angle. Margaret first. So I think of CEOs as um, individuals who like strategy to be coherent. And so instead of being super reactive, like, oh, yikes, Black Lives Matter just happened. I guess we better buff up our diversity strategy, which we saw a lot of. They're thinking much more deeply and broadly about the fact that strategy has to be coherent with the world if it's going to be credible. Now, many of the CEOs that I've interviewed, that I've worked with, that I know well, many of them think of strategy as just what's happening inside the company. You know, that's not because they're mad, bad or stupid. It's because that's what most of their attention goes to. But I think what I see quite regularly among some really outstanding leaders is they lose sight of the fact that business and society have a very dynamic and meaningful relationship with each other. However much one might call oneself a leader, strategy only really works if it fits into the society on which the business depends. It's very hard to run a business in a place where society has fallen apart. So all businesses have an intrinsic interest in a stable, flourishing, to some degree predictable working environment. Danny agrees 
and sees making a positive contribution to society as a powerful intrinsic motivator for leaders. I think most of us who pursue the kind of executive career path do so because we want to make a difference to to our organisations, to our communities. I think that's true in the private sector as well in the as well as the public sector. You know, there is that that sense of being able to to positively impact. That notion of activism fits with that. Actually, you do the job because you want to make a difference. You you aspire to do other jobs because you want to make a difference. So I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing is that increasingly in this last 10 years, I think it's become clear that actually leaders of organisations do need to speak out on behalf of the people they employ, people they they serve, so that there's a rounded debate about, so for example, it's, it's not about querying the Brexit referendum. Once that was done, it was done. But it was about being clear about the implications of the Brexit outcome on the economy, on uh, on our people, on the services that we could run. It was about being clear about the pandemic, sometimes about choices the government were making, but about being clear about the impact it was having on, on people and on communities and so on. And that actually is part of the, the job. It's in the interests of NHS leaders because health isn't just bound up in the services we provide, it's bound up in people's living conditions and in their life chances. It's in the interest of a private sector colleague because actually a healthy and wealthy economy is in the interests of individual organisations as well as society as a whole. So Danny went there and mentioned the B word, Brexit. One of the common pushbacks against CEO and leader activism is that it risks business leaders straying into the territory of politics, as Danny alluded to earlier. How does he counter that concern? I think there is undoubtedly an an ethical dimension to some of the things we're talking about. I think there's also a dimension, though, which is about organisational performance, the performance of the economy overall. I think all those things are legitimate areas of interest and of activity, of activism for a, a leader. But I think it's possible to talk about those things and to ask for action about those things in a way that's even handed, that isn't about following any party political line, that in fact almost isn't, I mean, deliberately isn't about any party political line. The agenda now, particularly and because of the cost of living pressures that we see our employees facing, we see our customers, our patients facing, you know, there's a much broader um, discussion that leaders need to have. And again, that isn't about saying we prefer political party A's view over political party B's view. It's about setting a challenge to say there are these issues and we believe there needs to be these responses. And of course, connected to the case that CEOs risk getting too political is the argument that they are just too woke for their own good, and particularly when it comes to diversity. Take an article in The Spectator headlined The Rise of the Woke Corporation, which bemoaned the madness of diversity and inclusion training programmes seeping into the HR departments of large employers. How does Margaret think CEOs should deal with that kind of often very loud opinion? I think it's sensible to think about how far you're prepared to go. I think it's not sensible to pick fights just for the sake of it. Because it's not about you, the CEO, it's not about your company. It's about how sentiments are changing, about people, about history, about attitudes. And they're frequently changing in the light of new knowledge. So I think it would be rash to think, well, this is just all nonsense. I'm just going to be who I've always been. You know, this is when people start getting terribly earnest about being authentic. 
The murder of George Floyd in May 2020 and the subsequent rise of the Black Lives Matter movement threw this into sharp relief for many leaders, as Margaret goes on to explain. When Black Lives Matter exploded, there were many CEOs I knew who were totally blindsided. They hadn't really thought about it. They didn't think it impacted them, didn't really see racism as touching upon their businesses. And they woke up to discover that their ignorance was really not good enough anymore. And the very best CEOs that I know spent some time to understand what the heck was going on. Where did it come from? What was true? What was not true? Where did it matter? How did it matter? They tended to try to find people that, who could give them firsthand experience and explain why it really was important. I think, the, I think there were other CEOs who just thought, oh, it'll just all blow over. And the truth is that it may have done in their heads. It won't have done in the minds of many of their customers or their workforce or their suppliers. And it isn't going to go away. You know, until we have found really deeply established racial equality, it's not going to go away. So I guess I tend to be rather pragmatic about this and to say, actually, if you want your business to thrive in the world, you have to be in touch with what's happening in the world and chart your course according to your values, but also according to good firsthand information. And don't try to please the crowd. Just be consistent about what you believe and keep yourself informed and make sure you are surrounded by people who have the courage or the confidence or your permission to tell you the truth. I mean, then you get into the really difficult things, that you, as you do in the States, for example, where this is very politicized, you know, in terms of Disney's stand on gay rights, for example. And in, the, in these situations, you can't please everybody. It's absolutely impossible. So you have to make some very judicious decisions according to what your company values are, recognizing that you are going to piss some people off. It's absolutely unavoidable. But if you've always been pretty clear about what your company stands for, you better be consistent. Danny, meanwhile, is a passionate advocate for tackling social injustice in all its forms and, like Margaret, has little time for the anti-woke brigade. As a good leader, you've got to respond to the concerns of, of your people. And that's not being woke. Even if there isn't an ethical dimension to this for you, and there should be, it doesn't make business sense. It, it doesn't make good people management sense not to acknowledge and respond to what it is that, that your people are saying. Now, as I said, I think there is an ethical dimension to this. I think for us in the NHS, we know there is a quality dimension to this. We, we know that if our people, if 20% of our workforce aren't being able to do their best work, that's providing a poorer service to our patients. Um, we know as it happens in, in a number of our service areas that we don't do as good a job for people of colour as we do for, for white people. That's not, this isn't wokery, these are facts. If you're a black woman, you're four times more likely to die in childbirth than if you're a white woman. That's just a fact. We need to do something about that. So I find the kind of wokery criticism kind of facile and I'm really clear about the facts in terms of the quality of staff experience, the quality of patient experience that drive the interest of, of my organisation, of my members in, in this example, um, issues of race and, and racism. That's not wokery. It's the job. Our, our, our job is to provide the best 
care for our patients, for the population we serve. And we're not doing that. So we have to do something about it. And that's that's not wokery. It's it's the right thing to do. It's the job, frankly. You can tell how passionate Danny is about this topic when speaking to him. But that's not necessarily the case for all leaders. The question is, when looking at leaders as a collective, do we buy this more socially responsible approach? Is it a genuine and long-term shift in business and leadership behaviour and priorities? Or is it just fashionable right now? Here's Margaret's take. It's certainly the case that lots of companies, when they saw ESG was attracting shareholders, suddenly put on ESG jackets and acted as though that's what they were today. And then when ESG wasn't so fashionable anymore, they took the jackets off. So, you know, there's a real question here around who's doing it for real and why and what are the trade-offs. And it's very hard to tell because people are... I think, understandably nervous of appearing to preach. They don't want to alienate markets, but they're also human beings, right? They really do care what kind of world their kids and grandkids are going to inherit. Some of them do care about what kind of company they're going to leave to their successors. And it's fair to say some of them don't care at all. They've got, you know, maybe maximum a five-year run. They've got all sorts of incentives tied to share prices, and they're going to do whatever it takes to make sure that when they leave, they have made as much money on the job as humanly possible. So it's a very, very, very wide spectrum of motivations and behaviors and decisions. And what about the rise in grand value statements and company missions or claims by organisations to be addressing every single one of the UN Sustainable Development Goals, for example? Does every company really need to be solving the world's problems? Here's Margaret again. Well, it's been very typical for things like value statements to be drawn up by committee by a random bunch of people, often in HR. I think if you're going to do that kind of thing, you have to do it really seriously. And then I think you have to live by it. And sticking the words on the the wall isn't living by it. That's just performative. And I think it's perfectly respectable to say, actually, we're, we're here to do business and this is how we do business. And beyond that, you know, we do business in terms of how we treat our employees. But, you know, beyond that, we don't we don't really have a perspective on this. So, how does a rise in more socially aware and responsible leadership impact how we think about leadership development and selection? What does it mean for leadership competency frameworks, for instance, and how we should choose our future leaders? Let's hear from Danny first, and then Margaret. It comes back to the qualities of what makes a good leader. And and again, the best leaders are are agile and they're responsive, passionate. They have an interest in the people who work in their organisations. They have an interest in the people they serve. Uh, through their organisations. Of course, they have a a focus on the bottom line, whatever the bottom line might be in their organisations too. But those are the best leaders. We couldn't have offered any leadership development that would have prepared people for the magnitude of what the pandemic kind of visited on the economy and on our working lives three years ago. I think perhaps it speaks more to what we value in leaders, how we define good leadership, as opposed to the kind of development we offer people. And I think that's perhaps the question for boards as they make appointments. Well, what is the most sophisticated view that you can have in terms of what good looks like? We have tended in the business world to hire people who are excellent operators, who know the nuts and bolts of the business, 
often to the exclusion of knowing anything else. And I don't think that's good enough anymore. I think you've got to be able to look and think more broadly. I think your experience of the world has to be broader. I think you need a wider range of capabilities. Just being the engineer who's mastered the machine, which is pretty much the 20th century notion of being the boss, really passed its sell-by date. And, as Danny points out, all of this has implications for the role of the people profession and the HR function. I think there's a sort of paradox I'd highlight, which is that I think I think the function should become more activist, but it's also about making sure that the exec team as a whole becomes more activist. You know, this can't be the kind of worthy HR person in the room um, banging on about these things. That this should be about a collective endeavour. The best HR colleagues I've worked with are the ones that that align their activity, their priorities with with their colleagues across the executive team, with the with the chief executive, with the board, with the business. That's the kind of opportunity. And that's where we can make the biggest difference as well, is, is by having that kind of unity of, of purpose, that alignment around a, an exec table or a board table in terms of taking these things forward. So, to return to our central question, what if all CEOs were activists? Is that something we should be aspiring to, even working towards? And given everything that is going on in the world right now, do our experts feel optimistic or pessimistic about the future of leadership? Margaret first. By nature, I'm an optimist. And I do, in the mentoring work I do, see some really superb leaders who I think are very, very much more thoughtful than perhaps many of their own people recognise. But I've also worked with a, a number that... I think we're in it only for themselves. I think everybody around them knew that, so they weren't very highly trusted. They were not capable of any significant innovation. And on some level, I would say they didn't have much ambition. They wanted to get by and get good grades, but they didn't want to make a real contribution to the world. There are leaders that can set up cryptocurrency exchanges and fleece their investors, allegedly. There will always be people who, who disappoint, as it were, in terms of their behaviours and their, their choices. I saw far more leaders during the pandemic and in the period since the pandemic who are taking that kind of sophisticated view of what good looks like. Not everyone is a Timpson, exceptional family, exceptional leaders in terms of how they look after their people. But I think there are more and more leaders who, who recognise that actually operating in that kind of Timpson-esque space does get the best out of their people, does breed loyalty from, from customers, does lead to quality, frankly. And that quality in turn leads to performance and, and profit. So, yeah, I, th- I think there are more and more organisations that are recognising that in the kind of complex position we find ourselves in now, that that set of qualities are are the kind of qualities that will drive profit, that will drive performance for the longer term. And let's leave Margaret with the last word. It's important to recognise that there is positive activism and negative activism. And I guess I think of positive activism as something, you know, which makes society as a whole stronger and more coherent. And that's valuable because actually the more coherent and stable society is, the more everybody can thrive. I think the kind of highly polarised negative activism that we've seen makes society very fragile. And that hurts lots of people who weren't responsible for it. I think if we had more activists, CEOs, who were thinking long term for the stability of society as a whole, 
rather than for select individuals, I think we'd be living in a much more productive and safe environment. And we'll see. You have been listening to the What If podcast, brought to you by the CIPD's Work magazine. To find out more about how the CIPD is dedicated to better work and working lives, visit cipd.co.uk. And don't forget to check out the rest of the What If series from your podcast provider or the peoplemanagement.co.uk website.